Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking trading the commodity supercycle, and I'm delighted to have our first guest back on as a bit of a celebration of our 50th episode, John Massey. John is the head of the Houston office for ECTP and has had a long career trading commodities. John, thanks for joining us again. Hey, Paul, how are you? Thanks for having me. It's great to have you back. So I, I guess first off, it's been a, a year since the first episode. You were our first guest. And, you know, I was listening to that episode this morning and it kind of struck me how prescient some of your comments were given that moment we were right in the middle of the worst and most unknown period about COVID crisis. You know, we just had negative oil prices. We just, it was a, a challenging period. But to recap some of what you said, you were essentially saying that you believe that the market opportunity in commodities was returning, that we were essentially coming out of the, the, the trough of a super cycle, and that COVID had accelerated some of those trends that were getting us out in quickly or more quickly rebalancing or balancing supply and demand, highlighting some real lack of liquidity in certain supply chain challenges within them. And you also felt that was going to increase the opportunity for traders and, and attract capital back. And I think the sort of the stark statement was you believe there'd be more participants today than there were than there were at the time. And it's, it strikes me all of those things really bore through. So well done you. <laughs> the narrative now is very much about being in a commodity super cycle, a return of opportunity, lots of interest from both the media as well as investors. I'd love to get your take on that and if you think it's true and kind of the why behind it. I see, you know, three major themes sort of at the macro level, right? I think we can talk more micro maybe later on. Reflation, right, which is what, what clearly what we're seeing, we're seeing now, we're seeing it all through the system. Inflation and decarbonization. And those are sort of worlds of concentric circles and you know, I think we're seeing the money, you know, flowing into the into the space basis, those themes and how they're playing out, where we are in the cycle and what how it affects each commodity is is a different conversation. But I, I think, you know, we're clearly somewhere in the middle innings on the reflation trade. How inflation, you know, how transitory is this? How long does it take? What when does true inflation set in? I personally don't think we we've seen it uh, in its truest form yet, even though that's a very debatable. And then the, the, the biggest theme for me on a macro perspective is decarbonization, right? And that, that really encompasses, you know, the energy transition, ESG, electrification, uh, and, and other sort of buzzwords that you, you want to throw at it. But it really, it's a chase to, to you know, decarbonize the world. And I think it's going to have a, a very meaningful effect on the commodity space. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. I guess, first off, can you just describe what you mean by reflation and how you see that bearing through into the commodities markets? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, let's talk about it in, in a speci- with a specific example, such as oil. You've seen through the efforts of OPEC Plus uh, on the production side to the natural supply and demand effects and shale and others, and on the growth side, so you've seen a reduction in the inventories. And you know, as we've moved to this sort of post-COVID world, you're seeing, obviously, demand come back in the form of 
of uh, gasoline transportation. The only thing sort of lagging at this point is long-haul jet travel, but I think we'll see a, a return to some sense of normalcy as we move, move through the summer. So what you've seen is you've seen the price go from, you know, a, you know, a negative, but, but really a, a sort of steady state post-May, something in the 20s, to a product that's you know looks pretty durable uh, here in the 60s. So uh, that that you know is is what I mean by reflation, right? And I think you you've seen it in in other products as well. And and do I think that that is indicative of inflation? Not necessarily. Yeah. Okay. So moving on to inflation, it seems like that story becomes more prevalent every day, at least in the media. Just today, you know, not to date the episode, but you know. Bonds are down significantly. Food prices are up across the United States and globally. Where do you think inflation can get to? What does that mean for the commodity markets? Do you think, look, you have to break it all down, right? If you look at the labor market, there's clearly inflation. If you look at the lumber market, there's clearly inflation. If you look at food, there's clearly inflation. I think we can go back to each one of those and sort of pick apart more micro reasons why it exists, right? But do is the bond market at this, this rate level is a the gold market or some of these other signals telling you that we're in a, in a significantly hyperinflation market and, and those signals are not there for, uh, from my perspective. So you know, can that manifest itself? Uh, will it manifest itself? The, the answer is you know, certainly maybe, but more importantly, from a trader's perspective, you know, how does the market perceive that risk? And I think generally speaking, it's, you know, it's almost a base case for many. We see it in the flows into commodities and you see it into the indices, et cetera. And it's, it's been a tailwind if you're a bull uh, and if you're a physical guy looking at the physical market saying, hey, these markets aren't tight, these price forward prices aren't warranted, uh, that's a position as well. The third leg on that particular stool, which Jeff Curry you know, has also alluded to in his uh, Super Cycle episode, was is energy transition, and that you you mentioned being kind of the most significant of the other three pillars there between inflation, inflation, and now an energy transition. Can you just help us understand your point of view on on why that is making the market both more interesting and also generating this super cycle? Yeah, I think the first super cycle was driven by infrastructure, right? When we saw iron ore, cement, coal, oil, sort of you know, really, you know, really the supply and demand equation break and price sending the signal to having to go up and grab the next next level of supply. I, I think as we electrify, as, as we, we seek to decarbonize our, our daily lives, like the, the pull on certain commodities, uh, specifically the metals, is going to be very significant, right? I think how does it affect energy? It affects energy in a very different way, right? It doesn't Necessarily, I think we're years away from from peak oil consumption personally. But you know, how does how does that play? How does the the pressure to decarbonize uh, the pressure from ESG? How does that drive behavior on the production side? How does that drive the availability of capital? How does it drive the investment decisions and the hurdle rates that must be met? You know, those are. Those are questions that we'll have to answer as, as we move through time. But I think you're seeing a structural shift in humanity in how we view the generation of energy and the consumption of energy. And you know, I don't see that as, you know, I, I don't see this as, as, as something that's going to change. I think it's a, 
it's something that's going to affect us and it's going to have an effect in you know in, in every commodities market in some some way form or fashion okay i think you're if you sort of look at the arc of the trade you're seeing it in the carbon markets in real time right if you look at the the euas who have gone effectively unchallenged you know from the mid 20 euros to 55 euros today it's a relatively small market with a a, a lot of appetite and interest from the marketplace to express this carbon and decarbonization trade. And I, I think that's a very it's a very interesting market in the sense that the EU is less than 10% the world's carbon emissions and the EU program <laughs> covers less than 50% of the carbon emissions in the EU. So I think it's an interesting market. For me personally, I think that at some point uh, price matters. I think at some point you're seeing these carbon inclusive indexes. People and money flow is going to push price to the point to where there's some resistance, right? Mm. Because price does does ultimately matter. So I think there's lots of threads there, right? And in many ways, the first 50 episodes, a good portion of them of the podcast were kind of having conversations at the edges of the commodities markets and where these trends are taking us. And, it, you know, it's a really complex world out there created by energy transition, as you kind of pointed out there, like, you know, we, we still might not be at peak oil. Meanwhile, where's the investment going to come into to, to, uh, to, to provide that? that supply if you know there are all these other considerations about um, where organizations want to position themselves in that on the ESG scores the joy of this episode is is talking about it from a trader's perspective so if I think about a super cycle it sounds like everyone's kind of in agreement that it's coming there's kind of the from a trader's perspective there's kind of the what to trade you know, what which products are going to really sort of present a trading opportunity both increasing in price as well as volatility then there's kind of the the how to trade those products, and then there's sort of the who will who will the participants be. You've talked about carbon there, which is you know, there's lots of interest. I think it's also going to be quite a challenged market because I think a lot of these voluntary credits, some of them might not stand up to scrutiny, and that's already probably a story the narrative that's out there. Can you just give us a, an overview of kind of where you think the most interesting trading opportunities will be in the commodities markets in the next year? I mean, maybe we make this an annual thing. I mean, if you just break it down and sort of go down the list, like I think, I think oils is is going to be interesting. I think we're, you know, sort of in a in a show me period right now from a price perspective. You've got a lot of money coming into the indexes, and the indexes have a, a you know high allocation to energy, specifically oil and products. So I think, I, I think there'll be you know fits and starts in in that market. It'll probably get ahead of itself and then and then retrace and once and if the physical markets tighten up and you know the tapering of this spare capacity can be can be managed as efficiently as it has been over the last year, then I think the market will uh, will will try to take another leg up. So I think I think oil is an interesting market. I think natural gas in the United States in and of itself is is not terribly interesting, but when you when you think of it in the context of a three basin market, which would be you know Asia, Europe, and Atlantic basin in the U.S., uh, it becomes much more interesting. The Asian market looks very tight to me. Uh, the Asian coal market looks incredibly tight to me. Uh, thermal coal is that a good thing? 
Well, from a trader's perspective, yes, because of the ripple through effect. A, you can trade that product, uh, you know, through API two or API four. But from a natural gas perspective, it's likely that they're going to continue to have a strong pull on uh, LNG, which is which is, you know, is is a good thing if you're if you're a trader. And and if we're looking at where the the continental Europe is, the restocking seasonal restocking of gas inventories, it looks, you know, it looks somewhat challenged, right? So I think it sets up for a very interesting potential. If we're looking at a natural gas market that we think is going to end the year, sort of three, six, three, five, somewhere in that uh, zip code from a, from a balances perspective with a, a normal winter draw of, of two, two, you're within a one sigma cold event you know, of, of having some fireworks go off. So I think it's a, I think that's an interesting market. I think it's one to keep your eye on. Natural gas is probably too cheap relative to, to the other markets, but I think we'll have to choose some calendar to, to get to that. It's interesting about talking about natural gas there. That's certainly something that we, the refrain that we've heard a lot, right, which is natural gas has truly become that global market and is a really interesting opportunity and one that all participants can engage in, but you do need actually that global footprint to really maximize the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's no longer a closed system, right? It's for, for a long period of time, it was a closed system. But now that we're exporting, you know, assuming we sort of produce 91, 92 bees a day and we're exporting, I guess we can export 13 or so, it's a, it's a meaningful amount of gas that... Uh, that we can send out and it's a meaningful amount of gas that we produce if we don't send it out right so so the amplitude the potential price outcome of a lng glut versus a, you know a full send out in a, a tight local a tight regional snd you know, the outcomes and price are very different so it's an interesting market but i think it's more from my perspective who's not a person who's not tied to a specific product or a specific market or strategy at any given time, I, I view that natural gas is a is is more seasonally interesting for me uh, in the winter. And then there's two big categories you haven't mentioned there. One is metals, which are obviously seeing a lot of activity, and the other is power, which I kind of want to do a little bit of a deeper dive on. What's the view on metals? Yeah, so the industrial metals is what we'll we'll focus on. I, I think, from my perspective. You know, I mean, look, if you want to talk about it, you know, in a, in a hyper trading perspective, everything's pretty extended and overbought here. The story is very well telegraphed. My ins- my comments are, are not necessarily insightful or ahead of the game. But I think the power and the inertia to change is such that we will absolutely need to send a much higher price signal to get the copper that we need to and send switching or, or further mine development or, or whatever, however that uh, supply response is. Is mad, so I I think that's you know a longer term just own it type thing more so than I think it's going to be highly volatile because I you know I, I think the energy will remain if you're looking for volatility I think energy will remain more volatile but I I really I think those with a, a longer term bias or a longer term perspective you know the copper is uh, is pretty interesting along with you know some other metals yeah nickel aluminum. We should have a mining perspective coming up in the next uh, few episodes. The power side is obviously been a real, particularly I think a European story, at least from our perspective, from a talent perspective, over the last year. 
And it's interesting that in some ways, Europe seems to be a, a decent indicator of, of how energy transition will change the, the power markets. In fact, our last episode was on how the utilities are going to have to transform. We've done an episode on the European power markets. And the next one after this is going to be about trading around batteries. And a lot of the theme in all of those has been that kind of that volatility has moved from calendar trades on the long term down to actually the volatility now exists in the prompt markets and the very short term markets because they're so driven by renewables. And you've got this, you know, a much greater technological capability to 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 look at power pricing in 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 a much shorter horizon. First of all, the, the batteries are the are the most interesting. If you're looking for a single domino to to really change the power markets, it's meaningful meaningful batteries, right? Where you can shift load. But as far from a trading perspective, you know the power markets have become more challenging, in my opinion, uh, over the last couple of years as liquidity has has decreased, as has uh, volatility. The, and the markets are are mature and they're efficient, right? And so it's sort of it's a more difficult. From an opportunity perspective, it might not be as, as interesting to some on a longer term basis. And to your point on the short term, you know, I think there's there's a lot of opportunity there, and I think there's people that will will capture it. But uh, as far as you know, European power, I think it's also an efficiency thing. I think that that market is is driven by some of the renewable effects that you you discuss, and I also think that you know the the market is less knowledgeable about some of the flows. You know, within the grid system. A year ago, we were having the discussion about whether regulatory changes and you know structural changes in the commodities markets had re- reduced the opportunity uh, significantly, or whether it was just the, the the nature of the market themselves, and it just wasn't a fortuitous time to be trading. There wasn't much volatility. There wasn't low prices. As you look forwards, do you think there's still the opportunity to? Is that still your thesis that actually regulation has had? not that much impact and the market opportunity returning will, will yield good times. Do you think that there is regulation will have a meaningful impact on the kind of results people can expect in this super cycle compared to the last? I think regulatory has, has very little to do with this. Um, I think it's a, it's a function of, of, of market and where, you know, markets and where they are in the cycles and, and, and you know, what's it going to affect them in the future. So I think from an opportunistic perspective, I feel, you know, very optimistic about the, the uh, opportunity and profit potential in the commodities markets going forward. And I think, you know, some of the things that we addressed, right, if we were just sitting here talking about the reflation trade, right, and we talk about is this a one-year, is this a two-year, how high can we go, what markets does it affect, the natural conversations that you'd hear on a trade desk, you know, would be, you know, actually without the decarbonization, I think that we would, you know, sort of have a more myopic view of of this opportunity uh, set and how long and how durable and, uh, and what the duration of it is. But I think given the structural change of my belief in humanity and how we are going to view carbon and how we are going to view the generation and, and consumption of electricity as we move through time, uh, it's going to have knock-on effects for for the products that we've talked about. I think the metals are, are pretty easy to articulate vis-a-vis electrification. I think oil is much more complex in that you have both sides of the equation 
being affected by this as opposed to just a pull. So I'm very optimistic. In fact, I'm more optimistic about the markets now than I have been for for some period of time. And I'm generally generally up. Yeah, and I'm generally pretty optimistic. (laughs) So that you 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 are optimistic, and uh, and you mentioned there that regulation probably hasn't had a big impact on crimping that opportunity. Do you think certainly over the last decade we've kind of seen the shrinkage in the outright financial trader, or at least they've had a really rough tough run of it with the rise of algorithmic trading, a whole host of factors, transparency. Is there the financial opportunity in this market going forwards or will financial traders have a return to form? Yeah, I I think they will. If you're talking about, uh, do I think the diversified financial trading houses will outperform over the next three years versus uh, take last year out? The, The previous three years before that, I, I think it's unquestionable. You know, how the question is, do I think more capital is coming in the space? Absolutely. Right. How is that capital deployed? I think a lot of it is simply going to be in, in the index funds. Once again, I think that provides opportunity. I think the trading houses will continue to try to grow. I think they will continue to fight for talent. I think there is the macro hedge funds will become more active. Um, I think the active commodity managers in the hedge fund space will become more sophisticated. I think, you know, I think in from my perspective, when you think about how scalable is is any given strategy, right? If you were to say, hey, you know, like we saw in the you know, sort of early two thousands with the hedge funds that you and I are familiar with. You know, they were maybe a power and gas specialist or an oil specialist or, or you know, even a, a basis specialist, right? And they were, the opportunity slate was such that it was interesting uh, at the time, but not hugely scalable in the scheme of things. And I, I still generally believe that that to be true. I think the most scalable product for an active manager on the hedge fund space is going to be, a, you know, one that has a, a view across the commodity space, and, and can understand the markets and, and has the flexibility to deploy them as they can, right? And I see the index is kind of a obvious gateway to the market, but I think, you know, you might be beyond the scope of this conversation, but when you think of the indexes, they're somewhat backward looking versus, you know, sort of forward looking in a decarbonization. So I think the allocations within those will change over time. And I think as people become more sophisticated and sort of say, okay, hey, you know, the metals is a layup, um, energy less so, you know, ags is more of a seasonal, certainly on the grain side. So I think, uh, yeah, to answer your, your question, I, I think uh, more money is coming in the space and, and that's going to create opportunity. One of the theses that came out of uh, Javier Blass's and Jack Farch's book, the on the commodities markets recently, the, the world for sale, was that actually a lot of the trading houses started buying physical assets quite late in the last cycle as ultimately as a way of trying to capture more margin because you know, of the increased transparency in the market. Do you think that so you, it's going to be a good time for financial traders? Do you think you're going to see that rush to ash, you know, uh, the the trading houses, the commodity players, continue to or want to buy assets this time round? Is is that something that we'll see investment in real assets, especially given that inflation story? Look, I think you'll see some of it, but do I think you'll see 
a, a repeat? No, I don't. Right. The, it, the story ended pretty badly for, uh, you know, a fair amount of folks. A lot of the thesis at the time, not only was it incremental margin or diversification or, or even leverage, right? It was just simply that, hey, it was an informational edge for financial trading. And I, I think that, you know, I think that as a, as a thesis has been somewhat debunked, in my opinion. So that's that's interesting. There's a financial opportunity. There's a physical opportunity. You talked about the the, the indexes there, and I guess the the suite of um, available options for investors looking in a way to to get exposure to the commodity markets. That kind of brings us on to to who is going to be involved in trading this next super cycle. Obviously, the trading houses are there. Obviously, you've got the hedge funds, and, and we're all seeing that. You know, the multi strats have been around and looking for talent for quite some time but you're starting to see the rise of the or the return of the dedicated commodity fund or at least interest in it who else can be participants in trading in this next super cycle well I, look I, I think you mentioned the banks i always think the banks are going to be involved in one one shape you know i think there's enough money there and enough opportunity and they're going to see enough flow and have enough natural exposure that uh, you know they'll be involved what's interesting to me is sort of thinking you know, on the fly here is, you know, how can, you know, the ESG affects everybody, right? It, it affects every, every, every public corporation has a, a, a profile, et cetera. Uh, and the banks are offering them ways to mitigate that exposure and therefore has, you know, a ripple effect through the commodity as they engage the banks to do so. Also, Retail trading has changed a, a lot, right? With ETFs, can can somebody? We're seeing an ETF for carbon uh, that's got three hundred and fifty million euros in it, I believe. So, you know, how this manifests itself, who's going to participate? Look, I, I think largely it's going to be the same the same folks that you you've outlined as, as sort of the day to day players in the space. Yeah, it's interesting, the tensions on the bank, right? You've got this lure from the return standpoint, both financing as well as trading. But then you've got this counterpoint where investors are concerned about the environmental impacts of the sector and other social and governance issues. And actually, if you talk to some of the you know, the trading houses or the, the market in general, there is this concern over liquidity as well, right? That actually you've got a, a period when banks have been stepping away from commodity finance, trade finance in the sector, and that potentially crimping organizations' ability to trade the markets unless they've got a clear, clear, stable ESG goals and can kind of fit in the right buckets from a bank perspective. It's interesting you talked there about, uh, there's a couple of more players. One that we're certainly seeing, I think, is the return of the producer and the consumer on the other end of the supply chain wanting to build out marketing and trading businesses. One of the things that was quite stark from hadn't quite become apparent when we, we sat down a year ago was the the trading, the results of the trading groups within oil majors were simply stunning and arguably in a couple of cases were the reason why those organizations are still around or at least survived You know what was quite a tempestuous Q1 and Q2. Of, of 2020. So I, I definitely think those organizations all want to have marketing and optimization trading businesses so they can get closer to the customer, capture that margin, and participate in these markets. Yeah, I think that makes sense, right? If you have a an ecosystem that, that generates natural alpha through through information and you have the balance sheet to you know to capitalize on it, it makes sense. I think last year was 
a very unique event, right? Everyone didn't know the depth of, of the demand destruction vis-a-vis COVID, but it was very clear, uh, certainly when the Saudis and the Russians did what they, what they did at the time that uh, oil was going one way. I think the balance is, and we've seen it before, right, is, is how big can your trading company get, right? At what point do you depart being a producer of, of insert uh, coal, iron, or you know, copper, or oil, natural gas, and become a, a trading shop? I think it makes sense, and I, I think it's, you know, it's a model we've seen with the right people work more often than, than not, but I think you have to have the, the right risk tolerance because it doesn't always work out, uh, the right balance sheet, and the right ecosystem within your franchise to, to, uh, to recognize that you, you may have some, some edge over the market. Yeah. I think it's going to be an interesting year. It's very hard to ask people to uh, talk about um, unexpected events, but is there anything, one or two things that you think people should look out for that could have a change the narrative that, that's sort of setting up or, or indeed accelerate it? I think the, I guess what we'll call an, you know, an obvious potential effect is, is you know, a, a flare-up in COVID, right, where there's some form of mutation that can escape the, the vaccines that have been put forward today. It causes the world to go to, into some form of lockdown. And I, it's hard for me to believe under almost any scenario, certainly in the United States, that we would go to to that level of lockdown again. But I I think something like that is clearly not priced in the market now. Uh, Is there potential for regional conflict or even global conflict? Of course, that that certainly exists. Can something go wrong with with the Fed and how it manages the balance sheet? Is, you know, yield curve control real can't, you know, is how does inflation really manifest itself to 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 what degree, uh, and and what is the uh, the political response to it? So, look, I, I think there's you know plenty of things can that, that can disrupt the apple cart, but I think the base case scenario is that things continue to to progress positively from from a consumption standpoint. I think there's more stimulus, uh, most likely to come at the sovereign across certainly the United States and most likely Europe. So that that's the base case. But is there something that can disrupt that? Of course. I mean, it's, um, you know, there's also sort of this kind of drift to COVID as well, whereby I haven't seen my colleagues elsewhere in the world, you know, for a year and a, coming up to a half. And with events in India and so forth, it seems even less likely that international travel is available, certainly without significant hoops and quarantine that make business trips very challenging. So that's a certainly a reminder that COVID is far from done. You know, as you say, and, and then I think uh, inflation is going to be sort of, I think, potentially the wild card here. Yeah, I think that's true. And going back to long haul, you know, jet travel, okay, not only do you have, uh, you know, sovereign restrictions and, you know, flights in and out, uh, I think a lot of, some of that certainly in Europe will be, you know, uh, eliminated or as we move through time in the summer. But, you know, then then I think the next question, right, we're sort of trading a cycle and a half down the road, which is probably outside the scope of this. But the, the, the real question is, what is the effect of, of COVID on society, right? Do do people feel like they have to travel? Do people want to travel? 
are people comfortable traveling? Um, obviously, a lot of long haul flight is corporate. Is it necessary with in the days of Zoom and, and where everything has, I mean, the efficiency by which we've been able to work and, and survive as a population and effective isolation is is really is quite remarkable. So I think to expect, uh, you know, going back to normal, which to me, you know, I don't even know what that means, but you know, would would by definition mean something, you know, 2019 and been before. And I think that uh, for me to to expect behavior to resume as it was pre-COVID is a stretch for me personally. And just listening to our our episode from last year, we talked about how, and this was, I think, we recorded it in actually in late April, so really only a month and a bit into or a month, two months at most into the pandemic in terms of real lockdown. Both of us commented on how surprised we were, the efficiency gains, and how quickly we organisations adapted to the new normal. And I do think you know there's a massive tension at the moment about how different organisations are tackling what it means to to return. You know, once things do get back to normal. It's an interesting equation, and again, it may be, it may be beyond the scope of, of this conversation, but you know, how do you manage an incredibly tight labor market with the desire to get people back into the office in the face of positive results from people being out of the office? And obviously, there's, there's roles that have, you know, have to be in the, in the office space, but I think it's a, it's an, as a, you know, for you know, those managing big companies, uh, I think it's an interesting balance by which you how you proceed, I, th- I think you, uh, I think it deserves a lot of thought. Yeah. And, you know, it's contextualizing, obviously, it's a, a boost to diversity, right? You can not only provide access to more talent, larger talent pools, because you're not restricting yourself to certain geographic locations, which is great. But on the flip side, that brings its own sort of ethical issues about how we support the communities that organizations are in, even down to, I think, one of the things that hasn't been adjusted for yet is actually what's happened in a lot of professional roles at least is employers have basically bagged two more hours of work out of each of their employees and that blur between working hours and off time has has uh, has blurred even further you know and um, all of us who have colleagues around the world are finding ourselves starting much earlier and finishing much later as Zoom calls, you know, spring eternal. And and that's a challenge. And you see a lot of organizations trying to, to sort of readdress that balance. Yeah, it's impossible to unplug when all you have is the plug, right? <laughs> yeah, but it is, an, I think that's a really fascinating area that certainly, you know, I see some organizations, some of our clients quite set on returning to how it was. And I see others really embracing the change in, entirely. And I think that... Uh, finding the balance is the challenge. And the other thing to say is that it's great for seasoned professionals who've already accomplished, you know, who've kind of gone through their apprenticeships and need little coaching and mentoring to transact their role, and also have comfortable homes to have offices in. You know, it's very different for people at the beginning of their careers, where, you know, certainly when I started, you know, I had a shared flat, it would have been the worst thing in the world to, to have sat in my bedroom all day working from home and I wouldn't have been had the, the coaching I needed to, to understand you know how to perform my role. I think that's a very fair comment, right? And I think it just adds to the complexity by which the decision makers have to contextualize this and, and, and figure out what the right solution is. So there's one I guess one final thing before we let you go. I want to also talk about blockchain technology 
obviously we're in a moment now where I think that there's lots of interest in cryptos, there's lots of investment going on, and we seem to have hit a level where people are starting to understand the possibilities. Do you see, how do you see the crypto world and, and how it starts to intersect with commodities, both in terms of commodity traders trading them, as well as taking some of that technology from the blockchain world and transforming the nature of commodities? Yeah, well, I, I think primarily from a trading perspective, I think, to, as you said, right, I mean, there's sort of a critical mass of understanding, a critical mass of capital, critical mass of interest. The return has been there and the potential for return exists. I've said this for some time. I think every bank and every trading house will have a crypto trading desk within two years. I tend to think of of certainly Bitcoin as a uh, as a store of value. So I think uh, anybody that trades gold or has a you know wants to look at it in those terms should certainly be looking at it. But I think given the the volatility and the interest in the asset class, that uh, more and more people will migrate towards. Uh, especially with the inflation theme, right? We'll, we'll continue to migrate towards the product. As far as blockchain and having, like, I think as you get into a world of ESG and people wanting to know the provenance of, of the inputs for their product, right? I think clearly blockchain can accommodate that from an efficiency of distributing ledgers. I think clearly blockchain has a space in that. You know, I'll leave it to people much more uh, smart than I am to figure out, you know, a- exactly, you know, how, how to utilize it. But I, I clearly think the role of blockchain in, in commodities trading, um, in the commodities, physical flows will will uh, continue to evolve and materialize. Yeah, it's a, a big topic out there. Well, it's been fantastic having you back on. I do really want to thank you for being our first guest. And uh, and you and I remember what that was like trying to figure out how to do all of this. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's been great having you back on. And um, you were very prescient the first time around. So uh, look forward to having you back on in, in the year and, and, and seeing how this new narrative or the continuation of the narrative you identified a year ago, how it's playing out. Yeah, well, well thank you for having me. I, I always enjoy talking to you and I'm you know, occasionally, uh, what, do they, what do they say, a uh, blind pig finds an acorn occasionally. So hopefully we'll, we'll get some right for sure. We'll get some wrong. But uh, great catching up and thank you for having me and uh, best of luck to you and human capital. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider, and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.